This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Juice Analytics. Juice is the company behind Juicebox, a new kind of platform for presenting data. It's a platform designed to deliver easy-to-read interactive data applications and dashboards. Juicebox turns your valuable analyses into a story for everyday decision makers. For more information on Juicebox or to schedule a demo, visit juiceanalytics.com. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I'm very excited today because I have a very special guest with me, Alberto Cairo from the University of Miami and a variety of other things, other places, lots of activity from Alberto with his new book, The Truthful Art. Alberto, welcome to the show, friend. Hi, John. How are you? I'm Thanks good. Thanks for are, having me. Yeah. How are things? Yeah, things are, you know, I'm doing good. good. I, the book has just been published, so that's a relief. <laughs> so a little bit of sleep, maybe. Well, maybe not for you. Do you, uh, do you I just, sleep? I'm moving on from yeah. that. <laughs> moving on. Yeah. So this is the um, second book in the much-anticipated trilogy. Yeah, yeah. It's the second in the in this series. It's my second book in the American market, but it's actually the third or the fourth one in total because prior to the functional art, I did a couple of other books in just for the Spanish market. But yeah, it's the second one right. in the in the American market, yes. So while well, the functional art was sort of an introduction, I think, to the field of data visualization, maybe some best practices, and then, of course, a, a long section at the end on practitioners and uh-huh. what they actually uh-huh. do. This one uh, seems to be a little more focused on the practical nature of not only designing, but actually using data. Uh-huh. Uh, lots of sections on different types of data and uh, distributions. And targeted towards whom? Journalists, designers? Yeah. So, or, yes, you're, you're completely right. The, the first book, The Functional Art, was uh, like the, it, it laid out the, the, the basics, I would say, of uh, how to use a, a, both data visualization and infographics to, for communication, to communicate with the general public. Because, as you know, I have a background in journalism, so my specialization is not in how to use data visualization for data analysis or data exploration, although there is some, there is some of that in my books. It's more about how to use the graphics to, to tell a story, to build a narrative, to make things clear to the public. So the functional art was basically like an intro. Mm-hmm. And then the truthful art digs a little bit deeper, as you said, into how to use data and how to present data effectively by means of uh, charts and maps. So who the public is, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, wrote, I wrote the functional art very selfishly because I, I wrote the first book for my students, basically. Mm-hmm. I needed a book that I could use uh, to teach my classes, and, and I wrote it. That's, so my original audience for the first book was my students, who usually come from a background in journalism, backgrounds in graphic design. Some of them come from science backgrounds, but it's ma- basically it's mainly designers and journalists. That's what the that's the original audience is. And this second book is also is, is similar in that sense. So it's it's a book written for uh, with journalists and graphic designers in mind. But that doesn't mean that all the other people will not end up reading it. That's something that happened with the functional art. After it was published, I discovered that uh, most of the people who were reading the book came from other backgrounds. So mm-hmm. business analytics people, you know, people working in finance, people working in science, people who in general wanted, who, people who work in more technical fields, 
but still felt the need to be able to communicate effectively using graphics. And I believe that something happened, something similar may happen with the truthful art. Who knows? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that I usually say that I write my books for myself many years ago. So what, and this is even truer for this second book, for the truthful art, uh, because the truthful art also describes, you know, how to handle data, some elementary principles mm-hmm. of how to, you know, process data, handle data, analyze the data, very, very, very basic principles. And the reason why I describe it in the book is because I remember myself seven, eight years ago, 10 years ago, I didn't, I didn't know anything about the statistics. And I know that this is a situation in which many people, many of my colleagues in journalism and graphic design are, right? We are not trained in the statistics. Right or data analysis in school. Unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah. we are not trained. So we, we go then, to, we start working in newsrooms, and we are not really prepared to handle data. That was, you know, myself, I would say five, seven, eight years ago. I was not prepared. And still, I needed to handle those data. I needed to present those data, you know, using charts. So uh, the book is written in a way that I could have read it like five, seven years ago in order to avoid, you know, the many mistakes and you know, hitting my head, my head against the wall, mm-hmm. you know, suffering and sweat and <laughs> I would not say blood, but I, we could add that to the mix that I have to go through just yeah. because I didn't know much about all this stuff. Right. So it's reading in that way. It's like, you know, here's the handbook that I should have read, you know, a number of years ago in order to avoid all the many mistakes that I made in the past. Right. So when it comes to journalists who are creating visualizations, would that be the piece that you think they need to improve upon the most the understanding of statistics and how to work with data? Yes, at, le- at least at a, at a very elementary level, right? Mm-hmm. So being able to explore uh, the distribution the, uh, of a data set, being able to, you know, do a very quick, uh, take a quick look at, you know, a time series, uh, being able to, you know, do run a, a very simple uh, regression, something like that. So, it's, it, yeah, it's because what I say is that, in this new book is that we usually, and this, I, I put myself here, right? So mm-hmm. we journalists sometimes or, or often receive data from a source and we run to represent the data visually and just publish something mm-hmm. without, you know, thinking carefully first about what we have on our hands without, um, I don't know, going to experts, to statisticians, etc., who can help, or mathematicians, scientists who can help us understand the data better. I think that part of the process should be planned ahead, should be, should be part of the uh, dynamics mm-hmm. of creating a visualization. So creating a visualization is not just visually representing the data. It, it also should have like a previous step, which is like, you know, exploring the data, analyzing the data, taking a look at the possible stories that we can extract from the data, and then, you know, taking our assumptions or those possible stories to people who can help us understand if what we are seeing is just pure noise or if there are those are meaningful stories that are worth telling, right? So, and in that process, it will be really difficult for a journalist to do that on her own or on, or on his own. Mm-hmm. We need to collaborate more and, you know, create ties with people who know a lot about about data in order to represent it later on. So it's certainly part of the process. And why do you think it's not part of the process? I well, can... it's in many places. So if mm-hmm. you go, for example, to... Uh, media companies or organizations that are producing the best visualization nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would mention, for example, for example, ProPublica. Yep. 
eh, in New York, eh, propublica.org, that portion, that step is built into the process of creating the visualization. So they get the huge data sets, they explore those data sets on their own, you know, they create their models, they extract possible stories from the data. Oh, this is interesting. Oh, this is interesting. They don't rush to publish right away. What they do is to take those data again, either to the original sources or to other sources that can help put the data in context or mm-hmm. to basically compare your assumptions to the reality or to double check if, again if you what you are seeing those patterns and trends that you're seeing in the data are just noise or if they are meaningful patterns that you can tell stories about, right? right? So that is built into the process. And my guess is that, you know, the best places out there is what they do, like the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, but I usually put ProPublica okay. because it's a case that, I, as an example, because it is a case that I know quite well. But I don't think that that is something that happens in smaller organizations, like regional newspapers or, you know, small news websites, because of different kinds of constraints, right? I mean, we, in journalism, you know, turnaround is really quickly, you need to publish really quickly. And and sometimes we forget that that's a crucial step of the process. And again, I'm talking based on my own experience. I remember, you know, doing these kinds of, you know, data stories a decade ago. And I remember that in many cases, we just published stories without double checking with other sources or with experts who could help us understand it better. We just we just published the story. We just published the infographic. Right. And that is completely wrong. That mm-hmm. is something that it sounds like a no brainer right now. Right. I think that people here in this podcast may be asking themselves, how could you be so stupid? <laughs> yeah, right? But again, we are we are stupid in that sense. And, and I recognize myself in that picture being stupid in that sense. And, and, and again, I believe that it should, that part of that step should be built into the process somehow, you know, taking the time to consult with people who can help you overcome your confidence right. in the data on your hands, basically. Right. And what about the documentation of that work? So a journalist maybe gets some data and then runs some regressions and then writes a story. You see this all the time now. Oh, we did this correlation or we ran this regression. And yet there's no documentation about that. Yeah, and I think that that is completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, again, the biggest news organizations that are doing better, best visualizations and, and infographics, etc., they sometimes, in some cases, they often document that process and they disclose that mm-hmm. process to the public. So 538 does that. Uh, they have a GitHub account and they disclose their data and their models in a systematic way. ProPublica does it, and, and even more so, ProPublica even writes articles about right. how this particular project was created. But that takes a lot of time, right? Mm-hmm. ProPublica can do it just because they don't do breaking news stories, right? Yeah. They produce stories that are done you know, throughout three or four, four months, right. something like that. They have the time to put together the story and also put together some sort of article explaining the methodology behind the analysis, disclosing the data, etc. So one hand, a media organization that has a much faster turnaround that needs to publish really quick can do. What that kind of organization can do? I would say that if you're working with public data, at least put the data at the disposal of the public. The public can download the data from your website. That would be one thing. And the second thing is, yes, perhaps you can write just a single paragraph explaining you know, the methods that you have used to create your visualization, the assumptions behind your data. I don't think that that takes a lot of time. And it's an exercise in transparency, in my opinion, that can, you know, improve your credibility in the public. We are being transparent. Here's the data that we are using. Here's the models that we have created. Here's the assumptions in the data. Here's how how the visualization was done. 
Now, here's everything that we have used in case that you want to double check mm-hmm. our model. I believe that if we only do that, we will increase our credibility because we will be acting a little bit more as a, a scientists should behave. At least this is the ideal, right, yeah. in science. If you're running a regression or if you're doing a kind of analysis in your data, if it is possible, if the data is not proprietary, which is the case in, most often in journalism, you put the data up there in the cloud so people can download it, and then you write an article explaining what the methodology was, mm-hmm. right? So I believe that more and more journalists could adopt this model or imitate it a little bit, right, and apply it. Yeah, it's interesting. I spend a lot of time with you know researchers and scientists trying to get them to think more like journalists in the way that they write and the way that they visualize data. And we sort of need the same thing on the journalist side to think more like scientists when it comes to being transparent, documenting what they do. Oh, I ran a regression. Well, what regression did you run? And we do it. So again, if you go to the best newsrooms, they have version control. They have, you know, they they document that, those steps. So if you are already doing that work internally, you're documenting all those steps and you're basing your work in publicly available data. Why don't you publish all that? Right. Why don't you publish it? Just publish it. And if, and if you're not no, documenting I mean, it. It's just a matter of putting, yeah. then perhaps you should do perhaps it. Perhaps you should. Yeah, right. <laughs> if you're not doing it, maybe you should be doing it. <laughs> so I'm curious whether you think journalism is sort of the leader in the data visualization field at this point. Obviously, we have an academic wing, we have practitioners, and we have freelancers, and we also have journalists. Do you think journalists are sort of the leading edge of who's creating and, and moving the field ahead? Well, certainly, as you know, visualization has many different branches. We yep. can use visualization for exploration. We can use visualization for communication. I don't think that journalists are leading the pack in terms of visualization for data exploration or data discovery. But certainly, you know, the best visual journalists out there are leading the pack in terms of using visualization to communicate with the public, right? So the most creative people, designers in visualization nowadays, are working for news organizations, are working for places like, again, ProPublica, The New York Times, NPR, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, The Washington Post, in the LA Times, which is also producing amazing visualization work. And they are doing very innovative stuff, like, you know, trying new technologies. The other day, for example, I was attending the Malofia Infographics Conference in Spain, and there were a couple of talks about using virtual reality mm-hmm. in visualization and infographics. One of them was by a Len DeGroote, who is the head of uh, data and visualization at the LA Times. And he was talking about the technologies that, that they are using, in many cases, in a very experimental way, uh, to push the field forward, right? To, to try new things, try and fail, basically. Mm-hmm. See if it works, see if it doesn't work. And then if it doesn't work, try again, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of innovative people in journalism uh, nowadays, and that's extremely exciting. Yeah. Do you think that the quick turnaround in journalism may damper sort of the innovation that people can try because they have to get stuff out? Or is it good that there is quick turnaround and that's what helps them drive to, to I think that, I, again, the best organizations out there have like two different production trucks, right? So mm. first of all, they have the, you know, the, the projects that need to be done very quickly and very, very published very, very quickly. But then on the side, you know, many people or most people in these departments also have projects that are more long term mm-hmm. and they can focus more on that. Right. And then the other thing is that the fact that journalism has such a quick turnaround also forces some of these departments to develop tools that can enable them to produce faster. Right. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the case of The New York Times has produced tools that they have open sourced, such as, for example, there's one called AI to HTML 
that was produced by, by the graphics desk at the New York Times that allows you to transform an Adobe Illustrator file into an HTML file, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so it transforms the tag, the Illustrator text into HTML text. So, and then they make that tool available for anybody. They open source it, right? But I believe, right, that they developed that tool just because they needed that, right? right. They needed that to produce quicker, to produce yeah. faster. But then at the end, it, it, it ends up benefiting uh, everybody else in the industry, right? Right, right. So it's all related, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about some of the common debates in the field. And mm-hmm. I wonder whether you think the common debates, we should stop debating them. So things like, are pie charts good or... Uh, truncated y-axis. I mean, <laughs> rainbow color palettes. Like, should we just get over yeah. it and just move no, on? No. All right. So the, the truncated y-axis in bar charts, we should not stop debating them. <laughs> I mean, we need to stop debating them because it is obvious that truncating the y-axis on a bar chart is wrong. Okay, good. Right. Trunc- we've, we've, we've settled that. Forces, right? We settled that. <laughs> so we should stop debating it just because it is a settled debate, yep. that particular one. But what, what we should not do is to stop pointing out cases in which y-axis that are truncated are used to mislead the public, for mm-hmm. example. I think that, you know, to the extent of our, of our skills and to the extent of our capabilities, whenever we see an example of graphic that has been obviously created to mislead the public, we should call it out, basically, mm-hmm. right? Um, so a, a rainbow color palettes, for example, right? There's a, some tentative, some evidence that shows that rainbow color palettes can be misleading, right? Right. So whenever we see a colleague in science, you know, using a rainbow color palette on a map, perhaps we should gently point out, well, you, perhaps you're, you're showing continuous data. So why don't you use a continuous color scheme, right? right. You can do that nicely. It's not a criticism. It's right. just helping people do better work, right? So I think that, yeah, we, we could, we, the debate is, is, is perhaps over in, in some of these cases, but what is not over is the educational side mm-hmm. of, of these things, right? And the education doesn't mean forcing people to do things. It's to suggest things to people. Perhaps you may want to do, and then show the evidence, right? Yeah. Show the rainbow color palette in comparison to a continuous color scheme and asking people, well, what, do you see the data better here or here, right? And then make them compare. Now, there are many possible debates that are not over, right? So the role of, you know, narrative structures in, mm-hmm. in visualization, things like that. That's still an ongoing debate. And I believe that is super healthy and very enlightening for everybody. So yeah. no, we should not, we should not stop debating. All right. At all. I want to come, I want to come back to that one, but you, I, I like the way you said gentle critique. So yeah. has the, have you seen the, and, and you, and you are one to, to come in and you do it a lot in the book about pointing out some visualizations that, you know, uh, aggregate the data in some, you know, dishonest, I mean, I would argue dishonest way, dishonest uh, way you know, yeah. showing, showing data in, in arguably dishonest ways. Have you, have you observed a change in how the field does uh, critique and, and, uh, and approaches critique? Um, and, and do you think there's, there's room for the field to move in a, in a different direction or a better direction? Or Yeah, I think, well, I, I, all right. So first of all, I, I think that critique has a role in visualization as in, as in any other field. Yeah. And it's, uh, if it is done in a, in a constructive way, obviously, right, rather than saying this, you know, this graphic is crap. <laughs> Perhaps, you know, and this, there's a very good article by Fernanda Viegas and Martin Wattenberg that points out, in my opinion, in a very good way, how to actually do a critique of a graphic, right? Um, and, you know, I think that there is room to uh, to do critiques in a, in a nice way, right? Being gentle and saying, you know, point out why you believe that that visualization is wrong 
or or, or at least you know could be improved, could be improved and sure. then point out and then point out possible ways in which they can be improved. Always making clear that, you know, you're not trying to settle the debate. You're just saying, you know, this is what I think. Yeah. And then if you want to take this advice, take it. Great. If you don't want to take it, well, perfect. Right. I, I will not be offended if you don't take it. Right. Right. So I think that that's I think that that's the spirit that we can adopt. And I, yeah, I see that field moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. So most critiques that I have read recently are, a, are are gentle, are very nice and very constructive, and and I believe that that's it all that we should follow, yeah. you know, rather than being destructive. Yeah. In the past, you know, we had you know many critiques. I would say too many critiques that were extremely uh, harsh yeah. or uh, or destructive. Right. Right. Yeah. I think one good example is the is the Makeover Monday project that you know Andy. That's a, and, yeah. Right? I, I was actually thinking about the name of that project yeah. by Andy. I think that that's a great way of doing it, right? So you show the before and the after. uh, You recognize the effort of the original author. That's another thing, right? Saying, well, this is great. You know, point out also the the good things about the graphics that you are are critiquing, you know. Uh, And then, uh, again, making clear that um, visualization has certain rules, but those rules are flexible, right? And they are, it depends, in some cases, they depend on context and, in, in, in some cases, the critique that you write, or in most cases, the critique that you write is your, is your opinion. It may be by, based on um, what you know about how visual perception works, uh, but you know you always, you always need to keep the door open uh, to the fact that you may be wrong in the critique mm-hmm. that you're writing. It somehow suggests that you know this is just my opinion. Again, this is my advice. If right. you want to take it, you know, great. If you don't want to take it, great as well. One of the things that's interesting about that project and and critique in general is some people's take on uh, remaking a graph that may be sort of a non-standard type and transferring it into, you know, a standard line chart or column chart. And there's always this tension, right? And you talk about it a lot in in both books, right? This this tension between aesthetics and beauty versus being able to sort of, you know, get the, you know, make make accurate comparison. Effectively, et cetera. Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying before that visualization has certain rules, but those rules are extremely flexible and context dependent, right? Yeah. There's a very gray area in there. Um, so, uh, so if you're going to create your visualization for analysis and quick exploration, it is obvious that you, that, at least for me, it is obvious that you need to stick to graphic forms that throughout the years have been proved to be effective at letting you see patterns and trends in certain kinds of data. So scatter plots, line charts, bar charts, et cetera, right? right. Now, if you are doing visualizations to communicate with the public, there is another level that you need to consider, which is the visual appeal of the graphic, like the, uh, as you said, the aesthetics, I want to call it aesthetics, but I will call it like the visual appeal, sure, right? Okay. The attractiveness of the graphic, yeah. right? The fun, the fun side the of fun the side, yeah. That's a very important component as well. So in some cases, you may need to sacrifice part of the, part of the, let's say, the effectiveness or the pre- perhaps the precision in the way that the data is represented in order to gain a little bit more of engagement, making the graphic more attractive to the public. That doesn't mean that you need to, you know, to destroy precision uh, outright, obviously. Yeah. But you may need to sacrifice a little bit of clarity in order to make the graphic more visually appealing, more attractive. Mm-hmm. It, that may happen in some cases. And, and I point out several examples in the book, right, that right. graphics that from the point of view of analysis, from the point of view of a statistician, uh, they will be like a like a yeah. scene. They will say, "Well, this is completely wrong." Right. Right. But from the point of view of communicating with the public, they may be very effective graphics. They may be graphics that will attract 
you know, people's attention to interesting facts, right? Right, right. Another thing you talk about in the book on the same vein is the balance between simplifying and oversimplifying. Yeah. You have some data set. Where do you draw the line there in your own work or the people you work with where you're going from? You have some complex data set. You've simplified it. And then there's some line that you cross where you've sort of oversimplified it. Yeah, well, in the book I said, and it's what I say usually, is that there is not really a line. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's, a, it's a very subjective decision. Yeah. And any statistician will tell you this. I think that there is not really an objective line that you can right. trace saying, if you go beyond this line, this is wrong. If you stay on the other side of the line, it is right. Yeah. right? What you need to think about, and, and this is something that will sound very, very obvious to scientists and statisticians, is that, any data set can be represented at multiple levels of abstraction, at multiple levels of complexity. So the simplest way in which you can summarize a data set is calculating averages, right? Mm-hmm. But then after the average, any kind of average, the mode, the mean, or whatever, you can also calculate the range. You can also calculate the shape of the data. You can also So there's like multiple levels of depth at which you can analyze the data. Well, there is also multiple levels of depth. And you, can, and you can represent the data or present those data to the public. What you need to ask yourself very openly and very honestly when you are working with those data is which one of these levels of complexity better represents the true story that I'm trying to tell, right? What is more tr- truthful, right? And then, you know, make that estimation, right? Make that, that, that conjecture and then apply it. Apply it, to the, apply it to your work. And the reason why I say this is because in the world of journalism, and again, this is something that I have done myself in the past, right? We tend to stick too much to you know, the simplest level of representation, which is the average, for example, mm-hmm. to represent a data set, right? the averages. And we forget that those averages may not represent the true shape of the data. Right. So if you're, you know, all your data points are clustered around that average, around that mean, it's appropriate to just report the mean. But if your data is very spread out or it has, you know, a bimodal distribution or whatever, the average will not be a good representation of the data. You actually need to show the distribution of the data in order to show that it is bimodal, right? Again, this sounds very obvious for statisticians, I guess, but it's not so obvious in the world that I lived in, in the past, right? Yeah. All right. So let's close up by asking some forward-looking questions. So where do you see data visualization heading in the next few years? And where are you heading in the next few? Well, for you, the next few days, but really the next few weeks and months. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I I don't know. I'm not good at making predictions. But I think that we will see more video. I think that there is a lot of potential in using video to tell stories visually. Video and linear video, traditional linear video, but also interactive video, mm-hmm. and then virtual reality. Really, the talks that I saw at Malafi recently about virtual reality mm-hmm. applied to, to visual communication really opened my eyes to, you know, the possibilities of uh, using those technologies in the in the future. So I think that we can head in that direction. Um, the other thing is that we should consider that today uh, most people don't consume our graphics through a computer screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, today I'm, I am at Univision, the Spanish-speaking television station here. I am in the newsroom here. I come here every week, and uh, it's all mobile first. And why is it all mobile first? Because eighty percent of the access they have to their website is not through a. They are not through a computer screen. They are through a mobile telephone yeah. screen. Eighty percent. So that forces you to adopt a mobile-first strategy. You first of all think about how to represent your data on a small screen. And later on, if you have time, 
then you think about how to show it on a computer screen. Yeah. So that's another trend that is very obvious, not for the future, but in the present. Yeah, right? absolutely. And the crucial thing and the, the challenge for the future is, and again, I don't have any answer yeah, to, you're right. to over how to meet this challenge, but the challenge is how to tell a story without oversimplifying the story in such a small space, right? Yeah. How to reproduce the richness of, uh, you know, a, a complex interactive data visualization in a computer screen, how to reproduce that into in, in, a, in such a small screen? How can you do that? I don't know how to do that. Obviously, yeah. you can make your story tall and scrollable, so you scroll, scroll, scroll. But there may be other ways of showing the same amount of data and the same amount of depth yeah. that we used to, right, in the past. You know, I had uh, Shaquin Viegas from, from Guardian on the, yeah. the show a few weeks ago. We were talking about one of the projects that they did on the Mekong River where the display that was shown on a desktop was very different from the version that showed up on the mobile because yeah. you, you scrolled in different ways. There, there was another very interesting talk in the Malofier Infographics Conference last week by Archie Tse from the New York Times, and he was outlining some of the 2016 rules for data visualization for journalism, right? Mm-hmm. And one of them is a less interaction, basically. Oh. And you can see that if you visit the New York Times regularly, you will see that their graphics have become less and less interactive. Mm-hmm. And that is because he says, you know, people don't really... Most people don't really interact with the graphic by clicking here or hovering over yeah. there. They just scroll. Yeah. They, they scroll the graphic. So they try to show everything, you know, on, at the first level, right? So people can just, you know, explore it, scrolling the story. Interesting. So those are not really trends for the future. They are the present. Yeah, they're already. happening now. Yeah. It's already happening, right? Yeah. So where will these technologies lead us in the future? I have no idea. Right. But, you know, it's, it's exciting to yeah. see this, you know, being used and being applied, being adopted. Yeah. Right. And so what about you? You're at Univision. You are at University of Miami. Yeah, I, I keep teaching and I come to Univision once a week to collaborate with visualizations here. And it's a lot of fun. You know, I keep doing some freelancing work, uh, doing some graphics on my own mm-hmm. and with some colleagues, with some here in Miami. I don't know, uh, uh, writing a new book. You know, I, sure. don't know. I, I keep writing. Why not? <laughs> yeah, I, why not? Yeah, <laughs> like I didn't have enough enough to do. Yeah, I'm going to write another write one. Another right. one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's exciting. Yeah, yeah. And last I heard, you were going to redo the website, maybe open sort of a formal studio. Are you still planning and going that direction? Yeah, yeah. So throughout the years, I have been doing some consulting work and some freelancing for some companies, but I, I do I did it mostly on the side, right? And I mm-hmm. didn't promote it that much throughout the years, in, in, neither on my website or any, anywhere else. And I decided that perhaps it could do it. I could just create a, you know, a corporate website or something and, and formally say, yes, yeah, I, I, I am here. I do this kind of work. And, right. you know, if you want to bring me in, I will be happy to help you with your project. So, yeah, I'm planning to do that in the next month or a couple of months. Great. I actually launch a, a corporate website, which will be albertocairo.com, basically. Great. That will be the name of the website, yeah. Well, we'll all look forward to that. And, of course, uh, we're all rooting for you because, you know, we all have our – well, at least I have an Amazon wish list just just based on Alberto Cairo's recommendation. So, um. (laughs) Well, I read less and less every day, though. (laughs) Because you're writing more and more. So there's only so many hours. I I guess that I'm getting older and I I don't want to, you know, take some, you know, time off every now and then. Yeah. Alberto, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on the show. This has been really great. Well, thank you, John. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast.
This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Juice Analytics. For 10 years, Juice has been helping clients like Aetna, the Virginia Chamber of Commerce, Notre Dame University, and U.S. News and World Report create beautiful, easy-to-understand visualizations. Be sure to learn more about Juicebox, a new kind of platform for presenting data at juiceanalytics.com. And be sure to check out their book, Data Fluency, now available on Amazon. 